Throughout this past season, we have been talking about prayer, and specifically, we've been looking to the life and the teachings of Jesus to better learn how to pray. The goal hasn't been just to get more information in our heads about prayer. While there is a lot in the Scriptures that can inform us about prayer, the goal has been to give us some tools we can put into practice. That when we look at Jesus, this, these, we can see behaviors in the life of Jesus, with Jesus withdrawing to quiet and lonely places. We can even see in the Lord's Prayer, when the disciples ask Jesus, they're not saying, tell us about prayer. They're actually saying, teach us how to pray. And so we've been using the Lord's Prayer over the season of Lent to just use it as a guide to give us some tools that we can put into practice, some things that hopefully you could take into your own personal life and, and try out, to try out how, how does it work to pray this way or that way. And so we've, we've talked about this using different petitions and portions of the Lord's Prayer. We've talked about ideas like worship and adoration, that the Lord's Prayer begins with, with a reference to God as Father. That when we pray, we, we are praying in light of knowing who God is and knowing who we are. We've talked about intercessory prayer, the prayer that when we pray thy kingdom come, that we're, it's a kind of prayer where you are working hard, advocating for other people in your life, praying that God's kingdom would come to friends and family and neighbors. We, we've talked about prayers like the, the big thy will be done kind of prayers, prayers where sometimes it feels like they're not always answered. Like you are boldly asking and you don't always know how it's going to go. You don't know that God's going to answer you the way that you're hoping he answers you. We've talked about listening in prayer, that prayer is not just about speaking to God, but also receiving from God, actually hearing through the power of the Holy Spirit what God speaks into our hearts and our minds. Last week we talked about the one-two punch, the combination um, of asking God for forgiveness in prayer, of confessing our sins to God and receiving the forgiveness, and then also praying that we would forgive one another. Today I want us to talk about this line from the Lord's Prayer when it says, deliver us from evil. Because this is a kind of line that I would liken to a battle prayer. It's, it's a line of fighting. In a sense, you could describe it even maybe using the language of spiritual warfare, the sense that there is a fight, that there is something going on in our world that is far bigger than what we can even see. C.S. Lewis, the author of Mere Christianity, actually described the fight in the Christian life this way. He said, enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed, you might say landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. In other words, in this world, there is an enemy. And maybe you can't see that enemy, but he is at work. And Jesus shows up in disguise in order to fight back against the enemy. For, for, my, for my, my family, if they're watching online, this is in a sense, this is the, like among us, right? You have Jesus going to fight against the devil and his crewmates. Jesus is the imposter sabotaging the work of the enemy. Right? This is what the Christian life is. Jesus comes disguised, disguised as a baby, coming lowly and humble, riding in a donkey. People don't recognize what Jesus is coming to do, but he has come to sabotage the work of the enemy. He's come to fight back against evil in this world. If you could turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 21, I want to spend some time looking at Matthew 21 would be what would be, we'd consider uh, maybe the traditional reading on Palm Sunday at the beginning of Holy Week. This is a passage that if you have been in the church, this is a passage you are familiar with. Yet at the same time, I think when we read this and connect it to the Lord's Prayer, there is some deep insights into how we pray and who we understand God to be. And so I'll begin in verse 1. 
where it says this, it says, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And at once you will find a donkey tied there with, a colt, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of them and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, there are a number of things in this event that we refer to as Palm Sunday that could be striking. If you, whether you've read this one time or a hundred times, there are a number of things that are a bit odd, especially considering, considering our 21st century culture. What we see in this city, what seems pretty obvious, is there are some expectations when Jesus arrives. There's no question there that there is excitement and fanfare. People are waiting for Jesus to show up. But what we also will find and what we can understand when we look at the events surrounding this is they are waiting for Jesus, but they are expecting Jesus to be someone different than who he really is. Palm branches in the day of Jesus would have been used as a symbol of Jewish nationalism. And so in a sense, this is, this is like the equivalent of us lining a path that Jesus would walk down with patriotic symbols like the flag and, sh and shouting something like, God save the king or hail to the chief. Right, that's the, that's the way it would feel and the expectations they had for the kind of savior that Jesus would be. They are putting, in, putting their hope in him as a political leader, that he would come as a Messiah to overthrow the Roman Empire, that he would come to disrupt what they were up against in that day. And so they expected a king, they expected a kingdom, a reign and a rule, it's just not the actual, the kind of kingdom that Jesus later teaches them and has been teaching them. And so they have some ideas, but they miss who Jesus really is. Even their shouts, they shout, Hosanna, Hosanna. Hosanna means save us. Which if we think about who Jesus is, that's pretty accurate, isn't it? Right? We, we shout Hosanna. We even worship singing Hosanna, Hosanna, because we understand that is who Jesus is. He's come to save us, to rescue us, to set us free from sin, from death, from the devil. The problem, though, for them is when they are shouting Hosanna, their hope is that he would set them free from something different than what he actually comes to set them free from. The problem isn't in their request. The problem is they have the wrong enemy in mind. So when Jesus teaches the disciples how to pray, he includes a similar line in the prayer. When Jesus says, deliver us from evil, doesn't that essentially mean the same thing? Save us, save us from evil, rescue us from evil. In other words, when you pray, deliver us from evil, you are praying for sabotage. You are praying a prayer that the king would sabotage the work of the enemy. That when you look at the world and you see things moving into chaos and darkness, you're praying that Jesus would sabotage that work. 
When you experience chaos and darkness in your own life, in your own family, in your own heart, you are praying that Jesus would sabotage that darkness in your own life. But the question is, do we have the right enemy in mind? Because you can get the words all right, you can get the prayer right and get the enemy wrong. I think there are two common mistakes when it comes to how we talk about the enemy in our world. The first of those two mistakes would be we blame everything on the enemy. That's an easy mistake, and it's it's probably easier if you've grown up in a church background. It's a tendency maybe to over-spiritualize things to the sense that it's all the devil's fault. And we'll do that to get out of our own blame, our own responsibility. And so it's, it's just the devil's fault, when in reality, maybe you're just being a jerk. Right? So it's like sometimes it's not the devil's fault, it's just your fault. I think the other problem, though, is one that is especially common in our Western world. Because we are educated, because we are informed, because we have access to better technology and more resources than ever before, we often no longer even believe there is an enemy. That there's no unseen spiritual reality, there's no devil and demons, that, that seems too primitive too mythical, too cartoonish. And so some of us would fall into that category. We, we, did, we don't even talk about it. Why even pay attention to it? And so I want us to pay attention to the fact that there is a spiritual battle, an unseen reality in our world. And when Jesus enters into the city riding on a donkey, they get the prayer right. But when they get... Jesus wrong, and when they get the enemy wrong, they're fighting a battle that they weren't meant to fight. And they almost miss, if it weren't for what the Holy Spirit does after the resurrection of Jesus, they would have missed it altogether. It's by a miracle that they even realize that Jesus was who he is. They have the right prayer, but the wrong enemy. And so I want to raise the question, do we have the wrong enemy? When we look at our world, when we look at the fights that we have with our friends, with our family, with our neighbors, do we have the wrong enemy? Are we fighting the wrong fights? I think there's a great word that can describe what we see in our world that I would suggest is evidence of the enemy. It's this word called tribalism. Some of you are familiar with it, especially coming after an election cycle, right? You can see this. It's incredibly common in our culture. It's actually happened all throughout human history. This is not a new phenomenon in our world. And the reason it exists in our world is because of human instinct. The way humans were wired to, in, in, in order to survive was to gravitate to tribes. It actually, at one point in human history, it was incredibly helpful. In fact, because you were more likely to survive if you had a tribe. If you had a tribe, you had people who could, who could help you hunt, you, they would, and you also would be more likely to realize who the enemy is if the enemy is approaching and be protected against an enemy, right? Having a tribes in the ancient world meant you would survive. The problem is that tendency in us is, is still there, yet we often live in a world when there's no physical threat, we respond as though there actually is. And now I realize, I acknowledge there are actually parts of our world where there are physical threats because of your faith in Jesus. For most of us, that's not the case. Yet most of us respond as though it were the case. 
And so in our developing culture, we actually respond the same way as though we lived in tribes and we do it because it makes us emotionally feel safe. Because if you have an enemy, you actually feel safer on the inside. Now, th- now maybe that seems counterintuitive, um, but it's actually a coping mechanism. It allows you to feel like if I'm in control of who the enemy is and why they're wrong and why I think differently than they think, it allows you to emotionally cope with the feeling that there is disagreement, and it also allows you emotionally to connect yourself to another group of people that don't think that like they do. It's a coping mechanism. It's a way we are built and wired to survive. So think about it. Have you ever, I'm not saying that, and I'm sure none of you do this, but have you ever experienced somebody who thinks like this? And it's, you know, it's those Republicans, it's those Democrats, it's those people. But there's a reason why politicians, why people raising money use that, because it gravitates people together. You can raise more money, you can build a better tribe, because you make people feel better about themselves, you make them feel safer. And what happens when you feel safe and you have an enemy is you don't deal with the darkness and chaos going on inside of you. Because if the enemy's out there, you don't ever deal with what the enemy does in here. Like if the, if the enemy is those people and, and their racist thoughts, you don't deal with the own bias and prejudice in your own heart. If, if the enemy is out there and their oppression and their abuse, you don't deal with your own injustices. If the enemy is out there in the way that they talk about sexuality, you don't ever deal with what you look at on the internet. See, it's easier to have an enemy and point out their sin to repent of your own. And so in our culture, which every statistic suggests is more lonely and isolated than ever before, that's prior to a pandemic, people are growing even more lonely and isolated and angry and depressed. One study actually suggested that 40% of adults have zero to one confidants, meaning almost half of adults in our world have no one to talk to. No one to talk to about their fears, no one to talk to about their insecurities, no one to talk to about the anxiety and the isolation and the loneliness. Our world is lonely. So no wonder people will gravitate to whatever group of people they can find that feels a little bit like they do. Right, imagine, right, that's why people, when they are anxious and afraid, they will latch onto a hashtag, which that could be any group of people, because if they're alone, if they can find a hashtag that resonates, then they feel like they have a tribe even while they're alone. That's why the internet can be the way it is in in social media. Why? Because people are relying on this as a survival instinct. The problem is it's giving people control. It's giving people a way to cope with their fears and their anxiety and their depression, but it's not helping people heal. Because you can't heal if you're fighting the wrong battle. The wrong enemy will help you cope, but it won't help you heal. It's only by knowing who the enemy is, what his strategy is, and who Jesus is that you can actually begin to heal from the pain, from the lies, from the sin in your own life. I think the best argument in our Western world that there is an enemy is just by our world. Like, look at it. Like, for all the progress and innovation and technology and advancement in our world, is our world actually getting better? 
I mean, maybe some things, there probably are some things that are improving, but I would argue that there are a lot of things that would still suggest that there is something underlying the surface, that there's still a battle between good and evil in our world. There's a battle between right and wrong. There's a battle between God and the enemy. So let's get an idea of who the scriptures describe as this enemy, because if we, we, if we get the right enemy, we can better understand his strategy of battle, and we can pray knowing what we're up against. In Genesis chapter 3, it begins the story of rebellion, a rebellion of, of humanity, but also a spiritual rebellion. In the story of Genesis 3, we read about this talking snake. It's described as a serpent. It's probably best not just thought like a normal snake like you and I would think of. Like, cause that, and some of you are like, yeah, like, that's a bit weird. Like, do we really believe in talking snakes? It's best thought of actually as a spiritual being. Throughout the scriptures, you actually, there are parts where it describes like the throne room of God. You hear language like cherubim and seraphim. The Hebrew word for serpent is, is seraphim. It's the same word that's later used to describe heavenly creatures. And so there's a sense in this Genesis story, in Genesis chapter 3, that there is this snake-like spiritual being who is there leading a rebellion. And it, is, and it is showing for us a parallel rebellion. There is a rebellion in the heavenly realm, and there is a rebellion in the earthly realm. That God in Genesis 1 creates the heavens and the earth. And so we see the skies, we see the stars, we see the heavens as representing, um, as representing heaven, but also as representing God and angels. Um, we also later in the scriptures see that there is a spiritual rebellion, that there is the Satan, an enemy, who also leads a rebellion. Satan desires to be like God, and because of that leads a rebellion in heaven. And then the temptation for Adam and Eve is to also be like God. It's the same temptation the same draw for them to become their own gods. And so then at the beginning, starting in Genesis 3, we see over and over throughout the story of scriptures that there is this rebellion within humanity and a parallel rebellion in the heavens. There's a rebellion where the people who are supposed to follow God are not following God, and there's this unseen rebellion. There's a sense that for every evil we see in the world, there is an unseen actor behind it. And so we see it in evil and destruction when Cain kills Abel. We see it in the Tower of Babel. In the Tower of Babel, there's actually, the, and people ended up get, getting spread out. That's one of the beginning of, that's possibly the beginning where there's actually localized deities. Each nation would have their own gods. I would argue that those gods aren't just imaginary gods. They're other spiritual beings. That they are worshiping the enemy. And so maybe, maybe it's easy to, to put this in the category of, all right, you know, that's like, that's then, that's not now. Throughout the Bible, we also see the enemy is given a number of different titles. His name's not actually Satan. I don't know if you realize that. Satan would be the equivalent of Christ. Christ is a title like the Christ. He's the Messiah. Um, the enemy is the Satan, which means the adversary. Ironically, it's also the same title Paul uses to people who gossip in the church. Um, which might be bad news for some of us. And so all throughout the Bible, it, the devil's actually never given the dignity of a name. Now, God gets a name, Yahweh, right? I am Jesus is the name Yeshua. Like God has a name. The devil doesn't get a name. He is he who shall not be named if you are a Harry Potter fan. 
And now some of you are rightfully asking, but what about Lucifer? That's a name, right? Now, the Lucifer, um, we have turned into a name. It's not actually a name. In, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah is using ancient language to give for them a picture of this unseen force. And so he is describing a physical ruler, a ru the ruler of Babylon, who is an actual ruler. And he is using language to paint this picture that people would realize there is an unseen force behind the evils in this earthly ruler. That there is a, a spiritual reality that complements the physical reality. And so he uses this ancient Canaanite language um, because in the ancient world, when they would look up at the skies and they would see stars, they would say, oh, stars represent the heavenly realm. And those stars are angels. Those are the gods. And so, and so Isaiah uses that picture to say, when you look up the stars, there is a spiritual reality. And so he points to a star and says, the morning star, which for us could be like Venus, Right? He points to this bright spot in the sky and he says, there is a spiritual reality that that morning star fell from heaven and is working in earth behind the evil that you see in this world. That, that word, the morning star, got translated into Latin to Luciferus or Lucifer, which is why we use it as a title. The Bible never actually uses it as a name for Satan. It's just a description that there's a spiritual reality, that there is a spiritual being which is under the, under the surface that we don't always see that is behind anything that moves God's good creation to chaos and destruction and darkness. And so I would suggest that all throughout human history, anytime we see chaos, destruction, and darkness, it is evidence of the work of the enemy. And you could also add into that work of the enemy Right, that there's the enemy and there's demons, there are other gods. I think they, you can group them all into the same spiritual reality. That there are times when the Bible describes other gods as not actual beings, but there are also times where it describes that there is a power and an influence. And, and you might even say, right, well, I'm glad we don't live in a world where we worship other gods like that. But in the ancient world, the gods were money, sex, and power. They just had different names for them. It's the, same, it's the same influences that drive evil and destruction in our world. Anytime Satan and the demons are at work, it's behind, corp it's behind co corrupt power structures, individuals, and sickness and plagues and destruction. And so maybe you feel like, all right, we've moved beyond that. That's just the ancient world. Or maybe you can see the work of the enemy like I do, in things like oppression, political unrest, abuse of power, breakdown of the family, genocide, wars, plagues. Have we really moved beyond that? Because when I look at our world and see racism conversations that don't seem to get better, when I see political unrest and polarization, when I see fights about how to respond in a pandemic, when I see abuse of power and authority, when I see a crisis of sexuality and gender, when I see widening gaps of wealth and education, when I see the breakdown of the family, when I see an epidemic of anxiety, depression, and suicide, when I see a problem of fatherlessness in our world, there seems to be good evidence that there is a force or there is an enemy that is moving our world into chaos and darkness and destruction. And so what do we do with that? Now the reason I push this is because if we can acknowledge that there is an enemy and we can get the enemy right, then maybe we will pay attention to how the enemy works. In John chapter 8 verse 44, Jesus gives to us the enemy's strategy. 
He says that he was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. In other words, the enemy's strategy is lying. That's how it starts in Genesis chapter 3. He lies. He said, you could be like God. You could become a God. That's how he continues to work today. His, his goal has always been, uh, has been dividing people. His goal has always been destruction and chaos and darkness. He is a liar. It's his character. It's his native language. And he lies about who you are. He lies about who God is. He lies about himself. Because if he can convince you that you could never be loved, that you could never be forgiven, that you could never be worthy, then he wins. Because what happens when you don't believe you're good enough, when you don't believe you're worthy, when you don't believe you are forgiven, you will find a way to cope with that pain, a way to cope with that reality. And the way that you and I cope is by finding other gods. So many people in our world turn to money, sex, and power because they don't know who they are. He lies about who God is because if we believe our God couldn't be good, he couldn't be powerful, he couldn't be who he says he is, we will find something else to replace God with. And in a world that loves to hate on religion, we have a very religious world for a lot of things that aren't God. We're religious about dieting and sports and poly we're religious about everything except for God. Why? Because we will always find something to replace God with when the enemy lies about who God is. And the enemy lies about himself because if he can convince us that the enemy is a group of other people, if he can convince us that there is no enemy, we will fight the wrong battles. And so the problem with this, though, is when you believe a lie, it's hard to know it's a lie. Right? When, like when, if you know it's a lie, it's easy to not believe it, but that's, that's not how lies work. Lies are believable. Like you can point to the evidence of your own life that, well, I can't be who God says I am. Like, let me tell you, A, B, and C. Let me tell you why God is not good. I can point to the evidence. I can point you to our world. Like, let me tell you. That's what makes lies so hard to not believe. And let's be clear, like this is not about finding the right news source. This is not the kind of truth we're talking about. But that's a distraction from the real fight. The kind of lies we're talking about is the lie when the enemy convinces you that they are the enemy. The kind of lie that tells you and gets you trapped in your own guilt and shame so that you, uh, so that you cope with it with ways that are destructive to you and your family. It's about the lies that the enemy tells you in order to redefine good and evil in your own making. It's the kind of lies the enemy tells you in order to make you feel alone, to tempt you, to search for community in places that God never intended it. It's the kind of lies the enemy tells you to make you afraid, to live in fear and to grasp for control with anything you could find. See, when we believe lies, we fight for control by turning to other gods, by turning to the work of the enemy, by turning to other gods, by turning to money, sex, and power, whatever it may be. And Jesus came to confront those lies, to confront the lies with the truth that the Scripture tells us the truth will set you free. 
When Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, he, he says that this kingdom has arrived. And so stop pointing fingers and start repenting. Repent and believe the kingdom of God is here. It's in our midst. And so what would prayer look like if we believed that? If we had the right enemy in mind and we knew his tactics, how would we pray then? How would we fight those battles? I think the first thing we'd realize is that prayer is the new protest. There is a sense in our world that there are moments that demand speaking up and speaking out. A sense that when there is clear wrong, silence would be just as detrimental as evil itself. Prayer is a different kind of protest. That I, I have no arguments that we should protest against injustice in our world. I would also argue that there is a more powerful kind of protest that starts on our knees. That in the kingdom of God relies on a different kind of power. A kind of protest that relies on a different kind of authority. A kind of protest that relies not on the size of our crowd or the volume of our voices. A kind of protest that starts on our knees because we have the audience of the king. And so when you see evil, when you see your neighbors hurting, when you see somebody you love mistreated, when you see somebody who doesn't look like you treated differently than you do, when you see lives never entering this world, you have the audience of the king to fight. And so why would we spend more time raising our voices online than raising our voices to the king? Because when we have the attention to the king, he says, I'm coming to fight. Well, my kingdom is not of this world, so I might not fight the way you want to fight. I might not bring up the things that you want to bring when you want to bring them up, but I have come to fight and I believe in our world that we are fighting back, that we are fighting against the enemy. We can look all around our world and we can point out the work of the enemy. There is no question. People in this room, I know you have lost people due to sickness. Some of you have lost people over this past year due to politics. Like how messed up is that? We in the kingdom of God have the audience of the king and so we can go to fight that we, that we would see reconciliation in our world, that we would see healing in our world, that we, would see, that we would see people treated differently, that we would see something better. And that place, that fight begins in prayer. And so when we see evil manifesting in our world, in political polarization or racial injustice, inequality for gender, killing the unborn, a gap between the haves and the have-nots, redefining fam family or marriage or sexuality, that fight started on your knees. Because some of us care more about what people think of us in the fight than whether or not the king is listening to us in the fight. We fight we battle, not against flesh and blood. Look around you. No one in this room is the enemy, and no one outside of this room is the enemy. In the way we fight, when we are on our prayers, on our knees in prayer, face to face with the king, we also hear that king speak back to us truth. And that's how we fight. We fight lies with the truth. The only way to fight against the liar is with truth. 
And so in the midst of the attacks of the enemy, we remember his strategy is lies. And so Jesus confronts those lies with truth, truth about a better way, a better way to live, a better way to be human, a better way to treat our brothers and sisters. Jesus fights against the lies about who you are by speaking truth to you, by confronting shame, shame that has formed pathways, shame that has formed a way that, that defines how you treat yourself. Jesus fights back against your own sin, your own struggles, your own addictions, your own broken relationships, your own thought patterns. It's a battle not against flesh and blood. The enemy is a liar. You can call him Satan. You can call him the devil. You can call him he who shall not be named. But when Jesus shows up riding on a donkey, he signals to us that he has come to fight. And he has invited us to join in on the sabotage against the work of the enemy. But here's the thing about Palm Sunday that we can easily forget. On Sunday, it seemed like the battle was just beginning to be lost. Because they expected for Jesus to be king, but then by the end of the day, he wasn't who they expected him to be. On Sunday, when they looked around, they began to believe maybe we aren't going to win after all. Maybe things are going to keep getting worse. Maybe the enemy really did win. And then the week continues and it gets worse. It gets worse. Jesus, even Jesus' friends betray him. By Friday, there's no hope left. On Friday, they believe evil is one. They believe like maybe we got it all wrong. Jesus isn't who we thought he really was. Maybe when you look at our world, you feel like evil's winning. Maybe you look, when you look at your own life and you look up at your friendships and your family, when you look at what the things you read and listen to, maybe you feel like the enemy is winning. And maybe you are even overwhelmed or anxious by the idea that the enemy is gaining ground on the kingdom of God. But on Sunday, when Jesus rode in on a donkey and they felt like they were losing, Sunday was coming. On Friday, when Jesus hung on the cross and by all appearance, all evidence was that the enemy won, Sunday was still coming. And when you look at this world and you feel like we're about to lose, when you feel like everything couldn't be more broken, when you feel like there couldn't be more division and a lack of peace in our world, take hope because Sunday is coming. Because on Sunday, what we celebrate is that the enemy didn't win, that he hasn't won, that the King of Kings is still on the throne and even death can't stop him. And so that is the king that we worship. Jesus, we pray to you knowing that you are the king of kings, that you are in a fight, in a battle that we couldn't win. But as your followers, you have invited us to be a part of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus, we're joining you. We're joining you in this fight to sabotage the work of the enemy. And so Jesus, knowing that the enemy is at work, that he is speaking lies, lies to our world, lies to us individually. Jesus, we fight back against those. Jesus, I pray for anyone in this room who is fighting addictions, 
for the people who can't put down the bottle, for the people who just are turning to, maybe they're abusing prescription drugs. I pray for freedom in this room that you would set people free. I pray for the people in this room or have been watching online who've been abused, who this isolation and loneliness has made them less safe. I pray, Jesus, for freedom. I pray for healing. I pray for the people who've lost lost loved ones, whether to sickness or to politics. Jesus, I pray for reconciliation of relationships. Jesus, I pray for people who are in this room or people who are online that have been mistreated because of the way they look. I pray that the church, that your kingdom would be good representatives. that the kingdom of God, that your church would be a place of hope and forgiveness. Jesus, I pray for anyone in this room who feels like they can't go on. Pray for maybe the person who is making plans that, you know, that, that this week's it. I pray that you would bring hope to a situation that feels hopeless. I pray for the couple who's struggling to get pregnant and doesn't know how long they have to wait. Jesus, I pray that you would give hope. I pray for peace. I pray for life. Jesus, I pray that we would not be distracted by these silly battles but that we would fight the battles that really matter Jesus as we look around us and as we see evidence of things falling apart as we see a world in chaos and darkness I pray that you would help us also see our own sin our own brokenness and that as we recognize it that you would lift our eyes up that you would lift our eyes up to see you, Jesus, the Son of heaven who didn't stay in heaven, but who came to us to fight, to fight a fight that we couldn't win, to do what only you could do to set us free. And so Jesus, we pray, Lord, rescue us, save us, set us free.